You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, welcome to uh, tonight's session, to 10 Hard Questions. Uh, Over the, the past number of weeks, we've tackled a few important questions some stumbling blocks that many of you, that many people have when it comes to Christianity. We have explored how can you say that there's only one true faith? Um, We've looked at uh, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? And we looked at how can you take the Bible literally? And then last week, we looked at doesn't Christianity promote violence. Tonight's topic <laughs> is, is a big one. We're setting up more tables. That's why I'm hesitating. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we're just setting up one last table, and then, then we're good to go. Oh, like we actually ran out of coffee tonight. Wow, ran out of thanks. Thanks, Angie. So we're gonna have more coffee in a few minutes. So tonight's question is isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQIA plus? Uh this is a big question. It's a reminder tonight. Um that it's good to ask questions. And this question is an important question, for sure. But if Christianity can't deal with tough questions, we're in a lot of trouble. It's not worth following. If Jesus is the author of life, the source of all reality, we ought to be able to deal with any question. It's a reminder that I may not, and I Tonight, I probably will not have the answer you're looking for. I'm not the Bible answer, man. I'll try my best. Uh, But I also want to encourage you to keep questions coming. Uh, We have our last week is the Ask Anything Night. And I've been getting questions regularly from you through email. And uh, my dear colleague, Jonathan, is compiling a list. And these questions just are really hard. So thank you. (laughs) They're very difficult. They're great questions, though. Um, Tonight's hard question is, isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQ? 2IA plus. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Going in tonight, um, I kind of felt like Harry Potter. How many of you know who Harry Potter is? Yeah, never heard of him. Okay. So there's a book in the Harry Potter series called The Goblet of Fire. And in The Goblet of Fire, Harry is given a task. It's the second task. And he has no idea how to do this task. And the day comes closer and closer and closer. And he has no clue how he's going to do this task. He has to enter this deep lake and retrieve something valuable. And the day before, he's thinking, I'm just going to have to show up and admit that I got nothing. Until Dobby, the house elf, came up 
at the 11th hour and gave him gillyweed so he could do that. So I've been waiting for Dobby all week. <laughs> all week long, I've been thinking, how, how am I going to dive into these turbulent waters? And I'll tell you, tonight, one of my biggest concerns is failing. And one of my biggest concerns is not offering an adequate answer to a question you may have. And my biggest concern is not offering a loving answer to the questions that you may have. And this is a very loaded question. And so before we dive in, I'm going to read a passage of scripture and then we'll pray. And the passage of scripture is right at the beginning. Yeah. I don't think so. We might be out of notes. So uh, it's online. And oh, there's an extra one. Yeah, there we go. Oh, thanks. Okay, here we go. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 1, where, where we read these words in verse 27. Or actually verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Father, we come before you recognizing that we are utterly dependent upon you. Lord, we pray for your wisdom. We pray for your grace. We pray that you would speak into our hearts. Give us soft hearts, open minds. And help us to respond to what you say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the question before us tonight is, isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQIA? Which is a very good question, but it's a very hard question to answer. And I'm like, what? whose dumb idea was it to come up with this question? But uh, it's an important question. And why is it such an important question? Because on one hand, it's a personal question. Pretty much every one of us has a friend or a relative um, who would identify with one or more of these letters. And so identities and feelings of real people with real pains and real experience, bad experiences in the church, are at stake. And honestly, as I said before, I do not want to cause any pain to anyone. Secondly, this is a loaded question. How one speaks about these issues has been shaped or curtailed by Canada's laws, even, by Bill C-4. Thirdly, it's an emotional question. And a lot of people can't simply talk about these issues of sexuality without feeling strong feelings one way or another. And it's a complex question. And I thought to myself, what was I thinking when I took this on? Because the problem is, is that the category of LGBTQIA plus is not a unified category. One, a person who is an L 
is very different from an, a G, who's very different from a T. And the other issue is I have this strong aversity towards categories because a human being is always much more complex than a category. People are not categories. We have come to each other with our own stories. And so part of the challenge I am facing tonight is, is this, and this is an important challenge, and it's an important thing that I, I, I need to do, is I need to differentiate between pastoral care and concern for people and an ideology or ideologies that are being promoted that, that are problematic to the self. Finally, this is a crucially important question that Christians need to think about carefully and clearly about. They're not secondary questions. These are not questions we can agree to disagree. They're not, they're not down the line. They, these are fundamental questions about our humanness, about anthropology, about the nature of reality, the importance of the body, and what it means to be free. And so we can't ignore this topic. I'm going to give it a shot. If I fall short, please forgive me. <laughs> uh, if it raises more questions, well, that's what the final week is all about. So fire your questions. Um, what I was thinking about doing, I'm looking at our time. Um, I was thinking about going for about close to an hour, just kind of laying things out. I'll have sort of a break in the, in the middle of that. And But I want to leave time for, for questions because I'm sure many of you will have questions. Does that sound good? Yeah? Okay. Well, let's go. Let's. Let's dive in. So how do we begin this question? Isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQIA? Well, how do you answer that? Part of my knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, of course not. Why? Because God is pro-life. Uh, where there are human beings, God is for them. So of course he's not anti-this. He's not like the gods of the ancient Near East. He's not like the Greek gods that are capricious and fickle. God cares about humanity. He's not like the God of materialism that says all there is is here by chance and life is meaningless. Instead, God is the one who makes every human being in his image and confers dignity and value onto them. Every human being that you and I lock eyes with is loved, is fearfully and wonderfully made, is made in God's image and has value, right? Amen? Okay. But again, isn't Christianity anti-LGBTQIA? Well, to be honest, my other reaction is, well, yes, in a way. In the sense that the biblical understanding of reality, human nature, and what it means to flourish as a human being differs deeply from the presuppositions behind a lot of these understandings of the self, sex, and gender. And so how to proceed? Well, this is how I'm going to lay it out. Now, you may disagree with this, but I thought long and hard about how am I going to do this? So this is how I'm going to do it. I'm Tonight, I'm going to lay out a picture, a Christian view of being human. In particular, as it relates to how we understand sexuality, gender, and our bodies. Then I'm going to contrast this vision with the vision of this world. 
a vision in our world that has given rise to the idea that same-sex marriage is completely an acceptable expression of marriage, that I can say these words that I am a woman in a man's body, um, and that makes complete sense to people, and where the term birthing parent is more appropriate than saying mother. Right? So how does how does these these ideas come about? And I'm hoping by implication, we're going to come to see that Christianity is not necessarily anti this or anti that, but rather is deeply and profoundly pro-human and leads not to bigotry, but to human flourishing. And so that's my plan for tonight. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll see if it, if it plays out. Now, I've structured the talk into three, three parts. The word, the world, and the way, which I thought was kind of catchy. I thought it was pretty good. But let's dive in, and we dive in at the very beginning. Are we all with me? You're with me? Yeah? Okay. Okay, we begin with the word. The Bible is where we stand, is where we start. And the Bible, right from the beginning, teaches us a very important truth. It teaches us that we are located in a story. The first two chapters of Genesis tells us some really important things about what it means to be human. These chapters are crucial in our discussion about sex and gender tonight. Because the Bible tells us about the creation of the cosmos, of all that there is. It's a profoundly theological text. So the Bible in the book of Genesis is not about how the world came about. That's not what its primary purpose is. But it's concerned about two things, identity and purpose. Who are we? And why are we here? And are, that, are, are not those the two fundamental questions of our age, of any age? Who am I and why am I here? Right? Now, why is this so, so important? Well, we cannot know what we are to do in life unless we're located in some kind of frame of reference, a story. And we cannot know how to live our lives unless we know who we are and what we are made for. And we cannot know what we are made for unless we have an idea of where we have come from. And so we need to look at the beginning. And in the beginning, what do we find? We can't miss this. In the beginning, we can't miss this. We find God. Yes, we find God. No explanation. He simply is. And so Genesis 1 cuts to the main protagonist, which is God, and the main event, which is creation. And God said, let there be, and there was. God speaks reality into being. And in the beginning, what we find is that what God creates is profoundly good. After each day, God creates and God says, and it was good, right? And then we read that the climax of creation is when humanity itself is created. Because the Bible describes that as what? Very good. Yes, as very good. And in the book of Genesis, God bestows on humanity an exclusive kind of dignity. The Imago Dei, the image of Godness. Now, doesn't mean we don't share our creatureliness with squirrels, <laughs> with other animals. We are all creatures. You and I are still creatures. 
We're made in God's image, so we have dignity and value, but we're still have affinity with because we're all made. We're all created. That's what it means to be a creature. We are all created by God. And Genesis also recognizes, and this is important. I hope I'm just trying to get to our place, but I have to do this carefully. Genesis also recognizes the duality of humankind, male and female. And this duality, this difference is part of the very goodness of creation. Together, male and female are invited into a story bigger than themselves. And then God gives them, gives humanity a commission, gives us the same commission. We need to benevolently be stewards over the rest of creation. We looked at this before. We're to be fruitful and multiply. And so the very acts of marriage, sexual intercourse, and childbearing are a gift from God right from the beginning. And we read that between the male and female, there is no war. There's no, but the common dignity and a joint commission. So where are we at? For our purposes tonight, we begin with the realization that we are located in a bigger story. And, and, and the Bible tells us that we, in our essential being, though who we are, we are essentially male and female. And the, sec- and the sexual differences between male and female are not some extraneous feature. It's not a mistake, but it is part of God's good, his very good design. Okay? And, and if we're not sure about that, when you get to Genesis 2, same thing happens. In fact, in Genesis 2, um, we, we, for the first time, we come across interesting words. We come across the words, not good. Up until now, it's been good, 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 very good. First time we come across the words not good, and it is not good for what? For man to be alone. It is not good for man to be solitary, one of a kind. And so, you know, the story, there's a parade of animals and and and, and the human tries and names them. No suitable companion is found. God puts a human being into a deep sleep, brings out two human beings in existence, man and woman, male and female. And so they're different but complementary. Now, this is interesting because the way the Bible describes this, it says male and female, um, they're not polar opposites. It may feel like that at times, but they're not polar opposites. Um, And yet they're not the same. When you look, if you're a male and you look into a female's eyes, you're seeing same but different, other. There's an otherness to it. And that is an, it's an interesting balance that the, the Bible makes. So the Bible d- differentiates male and female. So you can't just interchange male and female for each other. There's differences. But on the other hand, these differences are not complete polar opposites. So the whole idea that men are from Mars and women are from Venus, as, or whatever you learn in some conservative Bible conference, probably isn't really that accurate. There's a same but difference. And Genesis lays out a male-female relationship of reciprocity, not of uh, domination. Sexual differentiation is not an accident, but is God's design. And is a cause for celebration and wonder. And one other thing, I'm just going to make a point, is that in the creation story, men and women matter. But what you need to hear is that women matter because compared to any other ancient narrative of creation compared to how 
Plato or Aristotle or the Greeks thought about women, Aristotle said a woman is a deformed male. Um, you, you get this very elevated view and value of women in the biblical story. So make no mistake about that. This is something we've hit again and again. Now, one more thing, and it's this, that the man and the woman that we come across in the Genesis narrative are embodied. They have bodies. They are bodies. And in Christianity, the body matters. Boy, you've heard me talk about this many, many times, if you've been in many of my classes. And the body, in Christianity, the body reveals a person. Who I am is known through my embodiment. Now, just because you've been listening to me and you've been tracking with me, I'm just going to give you a break, okay? And I'm going to ask you a fun question, okay? Now, if you're here with your spouse, that's cool. Um, just imagine a friend, or it could be your spouse. If you found a way to take your brain and put it into your spouse's head and her brain and place it into your head. Who are you? Where are you? Okay, so I, <laughs> I'm going to all say it again, and I'm going to pause and let you, and you guys can just write online, but you can talk around your table. It's just kind of a fun, goofy question, but a profound question. Hang on. Uh, so we have a bunch of comedians online. <laughs> I like, uh, my favorite though has to be a uh, Ruth's comment that Rod would be a, Rod would be a Leafs fan. That was, that was that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you guys think? Like, it's an interesting question. So it, it like it, it actually it's it's fun but it actually raises some really important questions what does it mean to be me to be human are we simply a brain on a stick or an encased brains or is part of my body who i am I, that's my history is that also who i am and so if my brain is in my wife's head am i over there or am i still here what are your thoughts? Any thoughts? Oh, okay. <laughs> she looks really appreciative that you pointed that out. Yes. Okay, so yeah, you would almost have gender dysphoria in some ways, yeah, because you, you'd feel a disconnect between what your brain's in. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, yeah. Very good. So you bring up the whole question. This came up online too. Is, is where is the location of the soul? And what is the soul? And what is the relationship between the soul and the brain? And we'll add the mind. Like where, where does the mind reside too? Um, it's, it's an interesting question because immediately we think of me, brain, but is that really so? 
because our, our bodies and our kid, Katrina, you're gonna say? Perceived as the body, and so then, how much of us have to remain in order to break the world? Oh, good. Oh, that's good. So, Katrina made a great, great, great point that you know, if we have a different brain within us, but our old, but the other body we're still interacting with the world and how the world interacts with what they see may end up shaping how we become to see ourselves. Wow. That, Hey, we got lots to think about tonight. No, that's a great, really good observation. Good. Well, okay. I just wanted to get your brain spinning a little bit. Um, but my point is simply this, um, from a, from a Christian perspective, our bodies matter. Our bodies matter. We are not simply encased brains. It's not like this is my brain and my body is secondary. That is an old philosophy and heresy called Gnosticism. But I would say much of our world today is Gnostic in that sense. But we'll talk about that another time. According to Genesis, the body is designed to fit another kind of body in a unique way. Our sexed bodies reveal capacity for interpersonal communication. And also, as we learned in grade 11 health class, that our bodies fit each other sexually. And the sexual difference is what is capable of bringing another human being into existence. And so we can live out the commission to be fruitful and multiply. Right? So. This is the identity and the purpose of the story that God has invited us into. So there's a story that we're invited into. Now, the second thing I want to say about this Genesis passage, and it's going to sound obvious, but it's not. What Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us, and we need to remember this, recover this, restate it, is this. Reality exists. Now, some of you are thinking... Uh, well, duh, of course, reality exists. Uh, thanks, David, for pointing out this wonderful insight that reality exists. But hang on. This idea that reality exists independently from us is actually a perspective that is under increasing challenge in our world today. In Genesis, we learn that God speaks and the world comes into being. And the, and, and the task of, of human beings is to look at what God has made and make meaning of it. The man names what he sees, but in doing so, naming does not make meaning, but it recognizes the meaning that's in the objects, in the reality itself. So God creates reality. As human beings, we recognize the existing meaning of that reality. Now, why is this so important? Okay. Well, because we live in a world where increasingly language creates reality. Language creates meaning. Let me explain. If we're told that there is no inherent meaning to a man or a woman, to being male or female, 
But instead, male or female is whatever we make of it. If we say a man is a woman, then the man is now a woman. Our language creates the reality. If we say that sex is not binary, that gender is a spectrum, then our language makes it so. And I think behind a lot of confusion in the world lies the belief that if we change language, we can change meaning and truth. This gets really dodgy. So we can talk and we can use the language of um, adolescent reproductive health, which sounds really good, but it means abortion for teenagers. There's an increasing move in the workplace. If you've uh, part of a, any HR department in any workplace, you're increasingly told to avoid words like mother. Because mother may feel help may make people feel um, uncomfortable. And instead of using the term mother, recognize that what you're talking about is a birthing parent. That's the proper terminology. Implying that anyone, a man or a woman, can give birth to children. And through the manipulation of language, we can change reality. Now, Orwell, in his 1984, uh, talked about this a long time ago, but it was quite prophetic. And my point is simply this, is that that's not what the story of Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us that reality exists. Meaning exists within the reality that God has created. It is intelligible to us. And our language enables us to proclaim what meaning is. Doesn't mean meaning can't be complex. There's lots of terms. There's lots of things that there's a complexity to it. And we can disagree over the meaning of something. But we all agree that there is a something. What we ought to all agree at is that there's a something that exists in reality that we're trying to describe. And so the second principle that we get from uh, the Genesis account, well, the first one is that we're in a story. The second one is that we need to make sense of the reality that we face. The third thing is this, is that we are designed for freedom. Freedom really matters. In the garden, the man and the woman experience true freedom. They experience freedom to know and be known by each other. They were naked and felt no shame. They were in perfect communion with the surrounding creation and most importantly with God. So they lived in perfect freedom. Now we need to get this because in the biblical sense, freedom does not mean I should have, freedom does not mean an unhindered will to do whatever I want. That's not what freedom means. What freedom means in the Bible, and actually through most cultures throughout most of history, freedom means the freedom to choose the good. The freedom to choose what is right. And if we live in this kind of freedom, our lives flourish. You think about it. Uh, if, you know, if I say, I have freedom to pollute this planet, or I have freedom to take care of God's good creation, both in the world's eyes are acts of freedom, but both have different results. When we live in freedom, when we live in freedom from God, apart from his purposes, we run into trouble. And that's the story of Genesis 3, right? 
In Genesis 3, we see the effects of a clever lie. The serpent told the woman that if she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall be like God. The lie does a trick. She's already forgetting that she's already made in God's image. She forgets that living in accordance with the ways of the author of life might just preserve freedom. And in the end, she and he want more. And they doubt God's goodness. They doubt God's gift of their bodies. They doubt God's gift of grace. And this is where, in the Bible, it describes sin entering the world. But you have to get this. Sin is not a something. Sin is the absence, is the absence of grace. When sin enters the world, what means is grace. Grace was, was lifted. Um, when the first human beings rebelled against God, what they lost was grace. Because they chose to live their lives as ultimate references for what is true and what is right and what is good and what is beautiful, apart from God. And when we try to live our lives apart from the author of life, we're subject to death. And so in, in, in our, for our purposes tonight, we see the man and the woman. What do they do? As soon as they sin, what do they do? They cover themselves. No longer is this bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that stood before each other naked and felt no shame. Now, they cover themselves and, and they're anxious, they're afraid. Hey, Pastor David, we lost your voice. <laughs> Sorry, I, I was lost. Okay. How much did you miss? <laughs> About a minute. About a minute? Oh, okay. Um, did I talk about sin? Did you hear me talk about sin? Yeah. Yeah. Well, give me some feedback. Yes? No? Yes. 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 You heard me talk about sin. Okay. And we talked about sin. Um, and so we talked about the, the dangers of when we are ultimate reference points for, um, for reality. Um, when we choose what is good, what is true, what is beautiful, what is right, apart from God, we become self-referential. But the Bible says one of the consequences of living apart from the author of life is you are choosing a life of death. Bless you. So, are you with me so far? Yeah, good? Okay. So, how does this all affect how we see sex and gender? Well, that's what I want to look at next. So, I want to look at how this plays out in the world. You guys with me so far? Okay, I know you probably have questions, but you're, you're tracking with me so far, right? Ish? Okay. Okay. How does this play out in the world? Well, we live in a world that's no longer living by a story, but is dislocated. We live in a world that is dislocated. We are unmoored. We are tossed around in a stormy sea of confusion. We are dislocated from the story that God has invited us into. And so we're unmoored. And, and in our world, we're suspicious of big stories. 
Instead, we try to make it on our own. We try to instill some kind of meaning into our life. And I remember doing that in my own person, in, in my own story. I didn't believe in God, didn't believe in any of this. And so I remember going through life, trying to instill meaning into my life. And it got really tiring. And, and when you try to instill meaning into your life, you, you look for all different, you look for ways of relief, you look for ways of, of feeling some kind of something that will make you feel alive. And often for me, it was alcohol, it was drugs, or it was sex. Trying to feel alive. But, at the, the, but along the way, I just felt unmoored and lost. And when we ourselves, when we cut ourselves off from God's story, we cut ourselves off from the only story that can give us a necessary perspective to flourish. We cut ourselves off from the story that gives us identity and purpose. And on my own, without God's larger story, I'm left to my own devices to figure things out. And this is, this is where it gets tricky. When I'm presented with a very important anthropological or question of identity, should I be a man or a woman, for example? Should I sleep with a man or a woman? Where do I look for help to help me answer this question? Myself? My feelings? How do I know I'm right? If it feels right, but what if it stops feeling right? How do I figure out on my own, dislocated from a bigger story, how do I figure out who I am and how am I to live my life? What criteria do I use to figure out who I am? Pain, distress, restlessness, anxiety, what works, what might make me feel a little bit better? If I feel a disconnect between my, 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 my inner sense of self and my body, what do I do with this? Do I treat it as a problem to be fixed? Do I take hormone therapy? Do I seek out technology that can fix the problem that I have? So if I'm a young woman, do I buy a binder? Do I sign up for a mastectomy? Will this fix what I'm feeling on the inside? Often the story that we've been told is that a lot of people who struggle with deep gender dysphoria, which is, which is a genuine, real challenge for a lot of people. The point is this, is that you know, a person who is struggling with gender dysphoria uh, may be suicidal. But there's more and more recent studies, this long-term study that's just come out, that, that people who go through transition, who transition from male to female or female to male, go through operations or go through the hormone blocker process, that they are 20 times more suicidal afterwards than they were before. And that's not even dealing with some of the long-term health effects. And so when we live a storyless, fragmented, dislocated life, how do we make sense of things? Well, part of the problem is that we also, well, another characteristic of the world is that there's no reality, really. But reality is something that you can invent. 
And this is through the use of language, which we talked about. And so how did we arrive at the particular cultural moment where bodily sex is no longer seen as integral to the person, but rather is viewed as ornamental and can be swapped or changed into something else according to one's preference? Now, there's a long story to how we got to now. And what I want to point out, as I always do, um, I've read many books on issues of sex and gender and theology. This is the best one I've ever read. And it's just come out recently, and it's by a woman. Um, uh, her name's uh, Abigail Favale, and it's called The Genesis of Gender. And it is just amazing. And it's one of the most important books on this. And anyhow, her background is that she was a um, quite a quite a strong feminist for a long time. She wrote an award-winning book in the area of feminism, and and then she converts to Christianity, and everything gets messy. Um, but this book is uh, something that she's just come out with, and I, uh, and I actually not a big surprise. I ordered some copies, so if you're interested. We have some over there, and I can get more in next week. Anyhow, she tells the story of how we got to now, especially by tracing the story of the history of feminism in the in the in the various waves of feminism. Powerful book. But suffice to say that in the last sixty years, the concept of gender has been lifted out of its sex reality and has been used to drive a wedge between our bodies and our identity. No longer does our body, inform us of anything. No longer does our body tell us anything about who we are. Who we are is, is something that can be independently arrived at without considering our bodies anymore. Because once gender is decoupled from sex, then the potential for, like once you separate gender from body, once that is decoupled, then gender can mean anything you want it to be. And is there any wonder that the number of letters that are used to describe whether it be, and I realize when I do LGBTQIA, like I'm, I'm still missing four letters. I looked it up tonight because like, it's, it's constantly proliferating and it has to because it's, it's, it's an endless fragmentation. The pop narrative that we read and that we hear about in our culture pushes against the idea of reality because it tells us gender is a spectrum. Gender is fluid. Gender is innate. Gender is in the brain. Gender is a construct. Logically, that can't all be true. How can gender be innate and also a construct? How can be gender, how can gender be, you know, part of brain, our brain makeup, and yet something that we can choose? And the point is simply this, is that language in our world is used to distort and change reality. And there are, you know, just being honest, there are big companies, there's big pharma companies that are have a lot of invested interest, vested interest in keeping this going. Now, the problem is, of course, reality can push back. And we, and again, there's more and more studies coming out about the um uh, the the growth of people struggling with osteoporosis who've been on hormone blockers, hormone treatment, um, depression rates, and all sorts of things. Because reality will push back. Because reality is. And one of the other characteristics is the characteristic of freedom. 
And we live in a world, it's interesting, we live in a world when you do not believe in a transcendent truth, I'm not saying God, but just a transcendent truth or a sense of, of, of this is true for all. If truth is only subjective, is reality is subjective, and we can create it. If there's no overarching truth, then what is good? How do you determine what is good? If there's no overall transcendent truth, how do you determine what is good? Well, the most you can come up with is this is good for me and maybe good for you. And the only virtue we have left within the West, there's only one virtue that's really held up, and that is the virtue of an unhindered expression of will. I can do whatever I want. I have the freedom to do whatever I want with my body. I have a freedom to say whatever I am, to, 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 to declare whatever label I want. <laughs> what was that? Um, and the problem is freedom. When we talk about freedom to do whatever we want, when freedom is disconnected with an object, then freedom can mean anything. And in our culture, what does freedom mean? Well, usually it's like, I I need to be free to be me. But again, we come back to the original question. How do we figure out who I am? How do we figure out who I am? And and if my identity is constantly, if it's if it's not fixed and is if it's it could be anything, and then it could be anything again, if my identity is never fixed, then is it any wonder that one of the characteristics of our age today is restlessness and anxiety and fear? Because the very question, who am I, that's supposed to bring us peace is causing us to feel anxious because we're never we never know who we are because our identities are constantly in flux and we're changing and changing and changing exercising our will without any overarching guidance so this is where i think the christian story offers so much it's not that christianity's anti this or anti that i think that if 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 Jesus is God, then when our lives are aligned to Jesus, they will work. It's that simple. And so when we align our lives to the way of Jesus, we flourish. And it's a Christian story that helps helps locate us, right? We go back to the story and location. The Christian story teaches us that we're made in the image of God. And so our starting point is that we are loved. And we have value. That's our starting point. We are deeply loved. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. The Christian story teaches us that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That there's, there is sin in this world. And that messes us up. It could, it could affect us in all sorts of ways. We're all living in the effects of the fall. The Christian story also promises the forgiveness of sins doesn't matter what we've done. We know because of the cross, there is forgiveness. The Christian story also reminds us that we're creatures. We, our lives belong to the author of life. Christian story tells us that our bodies matter because our future is not, I'm sorry to insult maybe one of your favorite hymns, but that hymn, all fly away, oh glory, is actually Gnostic because it's like we don't, our spirits don't fly away. Our future is embodied. It's resurrection. Resurrection is bodies. And to the Greeks, this was crazy. 
You just got rid of your body. Why would you want a new one? But that's a Christian vision. But the Christian story also tells us about suffering. And we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. But at the center of our faith is a symbol of suffering. And it tells us that in our suffering, that we are not alone, but that God meets us. He understands suffering. And suffering can be redemptive because we can encounter the risen Jesus in our lives. The Christian story calls Christ followers into a path of sanctification. We're to grow in a trajectory towards living in sync with the ways of Jesus. And the Christian story teaches us in the new heavens and new earth, we'll experience a restoration of our bodies and our minds. And the other thing, and I think I'm just throwing this out there, it's important that the Christian story does not actually support any of the gender stereotypes that we often think are Christian, but actually have nothing to do with Christianity, probably has more to do with Western culture. Um, there's, there's, there's quite a broad picture of what it means to be a male and a female. And you read scripture and, 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 and you get that, that picture, right? As from a Christian perspective, we recognize the givenness of reality. And we need to recognize that there is a reality and we need to conform to this reality. We need to understand this reality. We cannot remake reality. And in Christianity, we have freedom, but we have freedom to do the good, to pursue the beautiful and to pursue truth. And we are free because we know that it is for freedom that Christ came to set us free. And that in Jesus, we experience freedom. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We know that no matter what we do, we are deeply, deeply loved. We're adopted daughters and sons of the Most High in Jesus. And that's our starting place. That's our ending place. We keep coming back to the fact that we're, we are beloved. And you can face a lot when you know that the one that truly matters deeply, deeply loves you. Now, I was going to leave you. I, I think I will. Let me just leave you with a story that um, that Abigail um, Favalli um, describes at the end. She, she tells a story of a woman named Daisy. And I just want to tell you that story just briefly, okay? She tells a story of Daisy that when she was a teenager, she immersed herself in the online world using a therapeutic escape from real life and the turbulence of adolescence. And that's where she first encountered trans influencers on social media, seeing their stories in herself. And she said, I wanted their narrative to be my narrative. She thought they had found their true selves and were happy. They were attractive. They were successful in life. And these are things that I really wanted. And she realized that the issue was her body. I've been living in the wrong gender, she said. And if I just correct that, I would be able to thrive. And that was really attractive to me. And Daisy began to adopt the language of, uh, and framing of a pop gender theory, translating her experience through the prism of its categories. Even though she was an atheist, she embraced the standard spiritual vernacular of transgender anthropology. I have a male soul and a female body. They're contradicting one another. She wasn't sure about medical transition. And so she, she looked into it, and as soon as she was 18, Daisy went to an informed consent clinic to begin cross-sex hormones. 
She thought that there'd be some kind of psychological evaluation, but there was no gatekeeping. Within an hour or two of showing up at the clinic for the first time, she was giving her first shot of testosterone. Two days later, again with no psychological evaluation, Daisy underwent a double mastectomy. She had just turned 20. Now, thus far, Daisy had few doubts about her transition. She goes, I was quite excited when I started testosterone. I had a deepening voice, a budding facial hair, put her one step closer to a complete transformation. But then doubts began when she had finished her final step, a legal name change. She was on cross-sex hormones, which are masculinizing her body, masculinizing her body. She had adopted a legal and social identity as a man, and she had completed the only surgeries she wanted to pursue. The process she had embarked on was now complete. I was waiting for the final sigh of relief, she said, but it didn't come. In his absence, the absence of fulfillment that she had anticipated, doubts began to crawl, uh, creep in. And she started to have a sinking feeling about the decisions she had made. But she didn't tell anybody about it. Because right now, um, she was acutely aware that her altered body still did not quite look like a man's. But she felt an inverse incongruence with her sex. Um, before transitioning, there was an incongruence between her perceived male soul and her female body. Now she felt a schism between her female body and the whole male persona that she had created. And she didn't know what to do. Now, Favali, she says, I want to pause here and emphasize, Daisy is careful not to stress that her experience is particular and representative of all trans-identified people or even detransitioner. This is just her story. So it's not a story to say, and, and everyone's kind of like that, but it's just her story, right? But she recognized that our language shapes our sense of reality, but reality pushes back. Now, there's another thread to Daisy's story here. At the age of 20, she began thinking about God. It's not a new thought, but she started thinking about it more. Then the God thought became a Christ thought, and she found herself fascinated with the person of Christ. There's a sense of completion and wholeness in the narrative of Christ, she explained. Daisy started visiting churches, not as a believer, but as a seeker. She passed as Ollie, cautiously hiding her trans identity, unsure whether she would be accepted or rejected by Christians around her. Her growing interest in Christianity dovetailed with escalating doubts about transition. She remained noncommittal about her faith. Then COVID happened. And after trying for several months to recommit to transition, Daisy had begun opening up about her doubts. And now she had passed the last hurdle of transition. She had to reckon with the consequences of long-term testosterone. She'd been taking it for three years. And she became increasingly aware that around the five-year mark, her reproductive organs would likely atrophy to the point of needing a hysterectomy. The door to biological motherhood was closing. And Daisy's growing desire to one day have a child eventually outpaced the terror of detransition. By that time, she told me, doubts about transition were tormenting me day and night. And so I stopped taking testosterone. And I thought, I guess this is happening. I'm detransitioning. And at the same time, she became drawn to the person of Jesus. She began to read scripture and she prayed, God, show yourself to me. And he did. And for the first time, I knew what I believed. And I knew who I really was. I was God's. I belonged to God. 
Now, it might be tempting to read this convergence of conversion and detransition in a simplest, simplistic, moralized way. Trans person reads Bible, gets saved, feels guilty, stop being trans. But that's not what happened, she said. She goes, I didn't feel guilty, like I'm being bad or I was a sinful person. It was like, no, this is not right for you. This is not what you should be doing. And the Christian frame that Daisy slowly entered into is not a punitive, legalistic one, a frame of cold tablets, each etched with condemnation. You're nothing. Your desires don't matter. You're depraved. Instead, it was a recognition of a deeper desire. Maybe there's a deep part in every human being that wants to live with God. And maybe I found that part of myself and have to nurture that part of myself. Her experience was not a re, um, repudiation of identity, but it was an unveiling, a different way of seeing, seeing herself as a creation of God, deeply loved and reconciled to him through Jesus. It's a powerful story, and there's more and more of those stories coming out. And that's, that's what I want to get through tonight, is that Christianity is pro-life. And what I mean, it is pro wholeness it is pro flourishing it's not about just getting saying the prayer and going to heaven if jesus is the author of reality then everything everything makes sense in keeping with him christianity offers us true freedom freedom to choose the good gives us resources to understand suffering and it offers us hope that in the end, all shall be well. Doesn't mean all shall be easy, but all shall be well. And so I think it's a better story. And so that's what I wanted to uh, leave with you tonight. And I'm going to open it up to questions, but at this point, I'm going to stop the recording. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.